So my name is Stephanie Stronsick, and I'm the founder and executive director of Pennsylvania Bat Rescue. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Raw Safari Podcast. All right, y'all, we're going to try something a little different here. Um, moving forward for the next couple weeks and starting with this one, uh, I'm going to do a slight format change that I wanted to tell you all about, and that is what you heard at the beginning, uh, which is just that instead of doing a teaser that doesn't really make sense that you may or may not get where the humor is coming from, and that frankly, I have to remember to snip out every single week or try to find when there aren't cute, quick, pithy ones. Uh, I'm just going to start every episode with the person introducing themselves, and then they will be introducing themselves and where they're from so that I don't have to introduce them in here, and you don't have to hear me say a whole bunch of um, uh, oh, and you'll hear more about that in the episode because you'll already know what's coming. It'll also cut down on the amount of time it takes to get to interviews normally, though not if I want to talk to you about stuff like this. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to try that for the next couple weeks, and I want you all to, to let me know what you think about that. Also, I am going to... Um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes I will put what would have been the teaser or maybe a blooper or some other funny thing from the interview at the end of the credits as a little gift to those of you who stick around through the credits. It won't always be there. It'll be like a Marvel movie. Sometimes they'll be funny. Sometimes they'll matter. And, uh, sometimes there will be nothing. So you can stick around to the end of the credits and find out if you will hear something there. You will this week. Also wanted to uh, do some quick housekeeping here, remind you all to make sure that you hit subscribe. Make sure that you are following along at Raw Safari on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and at Raw Safari Pod on TikTok. Also, don't forget about patreon.com slash raw safari, where you can go and support the pod for as little as $3 a month. And um, you can get some bonus audio from some of the episodes, including this one. And I want to say this uh, both to my my non-patrons who might be interested, and also to my patrons who maybe haven't been checking out all of the bonus audio. Um, I've been working really hard to really improve that side of things for y'all. Uh, sometimes in the past, it's been as simple as asking for, you know, an extra quick little discussion about one extra animal that a keeper takes care of or something like that. And that still happens from time to time. A lot of times, uh, what I can get for the patron bonus is based on the amount of, of time and energy that my guest has left, honestly. But I have been working really, really hard to make them deeper and longer and more intense. And um, I can tell you that this week's patron bonus audio is over 20 minutes long. So it's it's almost a third, actually it's more than a third of the uh, the interview length. So um, there there's a lot of good stuff there and, and we go deep and a lot of times I go deep as well as my guests. So if you haven't checked out the last bunch of uh, patron bonus things, you really should if you're a patron. And if you're not, now is a great time to become a patron. All of those links are always there. So when you sign up, you can go back and listen to years of patron bonus audio. 
All right, I have said enough. And this was still shorter than most intros, even with my intro to the new intro. So uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Stephanie Stronsick of the Pennsylvania Bat Rescue. Uh, we are located in basically the countryside of Mertztown. Yeah, big old, big old famous Mertztown. I'm sure you all know that place, but in case you don't, uh, it is in Pennsylvania, um, and we are kind of above Reading-ish, I think. Yeah, we are almost in a in the middle of Reading and Allentown. Okay, so. cool. Yeah, yeah. And um, I uh, I found y'all online because there are amazing bat photos that that y'all take, and uh, it's it's pretty cool. I grew up in the Harrisburg area, and I live down by Philly now. Um, and so having something like this, you know, in my home area is very exciting to me. Um, and it's, it's funny. So describe your huge facility here and, and describe what this is to everybody. Um, so most wildlife rehabilitators actually have to live on site because of the demand of the wild animals, um, as far as, um, feeding babies and treating critical care animals. Sometimes it's around the clock situation. And our facility is smaller than you would expect it to probably be because the animals are smaller, but we are actually running out of space. So we are hoping to renovate um, and expand our physical space um, in hopefully April, but it might be delayed a little bit until May or June. Um, But we house a lot of bats all year round, so we don't really get downtime. So unfortunately, there's a lot of bats in there all the time. So, And there are a lot of bats in there. But but let me be clear. We're at a house. We are. In a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I was I, – I, I, I did not expect that. I was, I was pulling up and I'm like, I'm in this neighborhood. I wonder when I will hit the road that will take me to, you know, the, the, the back. The giant facility. Yeah. Not even (laughs) giant, but just like, I mean, just, just like, you know, I figured I'd hit a dirt road Uh and then we'd go like two miles and then, and then no, I was like, oh, there's a neighbor and here we are. And we're just, we're at your house. We are at your kitchen table right now. We are. And that is astonishing. And, you know, one of the things that I was excited about when I realized what this facility is, is that I always tell my listeners that you can be involved, that you can make a difference, that one person can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And you are the epitome of that. Your garage is saving bats. Yeah. That's incredible. And so I really look forward to, to sharing all of this story uh, with everyone. But um, it, it's just, it's so cool to see that because so often, you know, like I, I was saying beforehand, I go to places like the San Diego Zoo and there are miles of place and thousands of staff and it's all amazing what they can do. But here is one person actually making a difference. And I know, I know there are like two or three of you involved, but, but really this was your baby. And, and so, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. So let's, let's dig into it. When did you first realize that you are an animal nerd? Um, since the moment I can remember life, um, I grew up in a very rural area, very wooded. There were ponds and streams. There was a small orchard we had. It was very country style. There was not a lot of people at that moment in the area. And so I enjoyed nature. My father was a huge nature enthusiast, my grandparents. um, So those are the people I spent most of the time with. And 
a lot of those people, especially my father and my my grandfather, um, they didn't fear anything. And I think as a child, when you're growing up and you grow up with other people's fears, they become your own sometimes. And so they didn't fear snakes, which I, at the moment, I didn't really enjoy as a child. Um, but now I've come to enjoy them. And they didn't fear bats. They didn't fear the night, you know, all that craziness. So I grew up enjoying everything. And I think that makes a world of difference. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I used to be a huge arachnophobe and, and overcame it on the podcast. Uh, and, you know, my dad was afraid of spiders. And uh, from talking to him and my mom, I don't think I was when I was really, really little. They didn't phase me. But I kind of learned that dad was. And he's like a hero to me. So, like, of course, spiders have to be scary. <laughs> and actually, uh, you know, much, much later in life, I found out, no, they're really cool. But um, it is yeah. interesting how you can learn that kind of thing. Um, and so, so what uh, what path did you take then? You know, as you grew up to to get to the point where you're doing what you do. It was a long path with many side roads. Um, so, as a child, I had a lot of animals, and I was the kid playing in the stream and collecting the salamanders and looking at the salamanders, and just really being enthused by what nature had, the gems of nature. And then, you know, as a teenager, you kind of lose sight of that. And then in my 20s, I um, started volunteering with a organization out there. It was a herpetological society. And so one of their members um, directed me to a wildlife rehab um, organization based in San Diego, California called Project Wildlife. And I started volunteering there and it kind of just blossomed into this love again. I fell in love again with animals. And so I didn't go to school for bats or rehab or anything like that. I just kind of stumbled across it because I just had this desire to work with them again. Um, and then of course I went to school later on, but that wasn't, that wasn't where I thought I'd be. And I didn't think I'd be a bat rehabber for sure. Right. No, I, I mean, who knew that was a thing you could do, you know, when you're coming up? They didn't have a lot of bat rehabbers at career day, if I remember correctly. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what would scare them off more from, you know, the standard schools, the uh, the 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 idea of bat rehab or just like all the tattoos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is to, a prerequisite, today, by the way, for working. To, yeah, with today's animals. standards are, are a little bit different. Back then it was like, okay, you know, not, not so much um, – appreciated, but, yeah. but today they are. <laughs> I'm like a living, uh, um, mural of what I do. So I'm like a, a commercial of what we do here and I, I enjoy it. A, yeah. bill, a billboard per se. Yeah. That's awesome. It's, it's very cool. Um, so why bats? Like, <laughs> yeah, why bats? It's, I mean, that's the question. I get asked that a lot. Um, <laughs> So when I started at Project Wildlife, I actually started rehabbing songbirds. Um, and they had this kind of the way that they are were or might be still set up. Um, you would work with the animals that were easiest to work with, and then you would build upon that. So I started working with songbirds and then raptors, shorebirds. And then I noticed that they take every native species at that time, um, which was 2007, I believe, 
And but they didn't take bats. And I was like, well, that's weird because you know, there's other rabies vector species. So I became for whatever reason, I don't even know. I I just found interest in bats and I really stem it back to my childhood. And my grandparents, um, they owned a uh, very old 1700s uh, colonial style home with exposed beams on the wraparound porch. And there were always bats. Oh. And I remember looking up at them all the time and I was just amazed by their social interactions. And so I became, I fell in love with them um, again, as, as many things, I fell in love with them again. And I reached out to the bat rehabber himself and um, became rabies inoculated with the, you know, the rabies vaccine and started working with him with bats. And I found that so many people have this giant misconception of them. And all it really takes is just seeing them either in person or in a photo or a video where it's, it's really displaying their actual personality and not this uh, vampirish kind of, um, ideology in this photo or whatever. So we try to expose the bats for what they really are and, and hope that it helps encourage people to, to educate themselves a little bit more and appreciate them. Yeah. And that makes sense. I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I get why people are afraid of spiders because I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've, I've read some studies about it and it, it, scientists and, and psychologists tend to think that it's because of how they move. And that's actually true of snakes too. And there's even this one study that has been peer reviewed and, you know, it looks pretty solid that says that they have never found anybody who is both afraid of spiders and snakes um, because it's like one motion bothers you and not the other kind of thing, whatever. I find it all very interesting. But for the life of me, I cannot understand why people are afraid of what basically amount to furry flying puppies. Like even just looks wise, like if you ever see a bat's face and, and on your Instagram, there are many, they're adorable. (laughs) This, this is literally like, I know there are people who are afraid of like dogs and stuff, whatever, but like bats get such a bad rep and they're so freaking cute and interesting and social. Do you have any theory as to why it is that so many people are afraid of them? I do, and it's mostly based on um, other people's perception. So when we get phone calls about bats and people are, some of them are just absolutely traumatized and they're screaming in my ear, um, <laughs> it's very it's very challenging sometimes. And you have to understand that people are afraid of things and not to criticize them for being afraid of them, but help them understand a little bit more about that animal or that situation or whatever. So I listen to them and I, I hear what they're saying and why they're afraid of them. Sometimes it's because they swoop too close. And the fact that they fly, some people tend to be afraid of birds and the people who are afraid of birds typically are afraid of bats just because it's a flight motion. Um, and also bats are kind of erratic and unpredictable and that's based on their sonar. They don't fly linear like birds. So they have a very erratic, unpredictable pattern, which can, um, can scare people sometimes, but understanding why they fly the way they do or why if you're standing in the middle of your living room at 2 a.m. and a bat is flying towards you, it's actually not trying to scare you, but you're standing in the middle of the room where they gain the most speed. So they come down and they swoop back up. It's about gaining speed. It's not about attacking you. So sometimes just clarifying that might help. But, you know. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and for those listening who might be going, you bats right now, um, 
can you like just talk a little bit about that? Like, why do they fly like they do, and why are they the coolest thing out there? Because they really are. <laughs> they are the coolest thing in the sky. Like, they just are. Yeah. So bats actually fly, um, as I said, a little bit differently than birds because they're. Finger bones are very different. Their anatomy is very different compared to birds. They are defying every law of being a mammal. They fly. They're true flyers. Um, They're the only mammals capable of true flight. And so they can manipulate each finger bone because they have joints and they have tendons and they have muscles. And they can manipulate their finger bones to fly in a specific way, um, whether it be to change uh, their flight pattern in a split second to... Um, collect an insect in midair or do a somersault. Bats can do somersaults in midair. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't (laughs) even know that. That's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, they are so amazing. And they they have the coolest flight pattern um, when they are hunting. And so they can manipulate their flight. And they can also sometimes manipulate their flight and become adapted to a different flight pattern if they have tears in their wing or holes in their wing. It doesn't mean that bat is doomed for death if it has a hole in its wing. It just means it will heal and it'll fly and it'll um, counteract the wind and how it hits the wing um, to be able to fly appropriately. So they fly the way they do to avoid predation, to hunt for insects, which all we have here in Pennsylvania and North America are insect-eating bats. There are a few, there are two species in the southwestern portion of the United States that are nectar-feeding bats. They're critically important especially if you like tequila. Um, <laughs> and we, they're off the Florida Keys. There is a small fruit bat. But collectively, most of the bats in North America are insect eating. All right. That's very that's very cool. Um, yeah, I just, I just love bats. But you're right. I think it is important to not mock people too much for, uh, <laughs> for their fears. Um, you know, um, but yeah. Okay, so uh, what is um, – like how, okay, well, let me, let me rephrase that. How did you get started? That is a great question. Um, I got started, uh, in San Diego, California for bats specifically, um, in California in 2008 feels like forever ago. Um, and then I moved back to my home state of Pennsylvania and it was a really hard time at that moment because white nose syndrome was a really big situation, Um, And it was just, it was very challenging on so many levels, but I really enjoyed rehabbing and working with wildlife um, specifically. And so I just did not make excuses. I found ways to do this. And I think if anyone out there is interested in wildlife rehab or anything in life, and there's not um, a set you know, criteria or job description for what you want to do, create it yourself. And that's essentially what I did. Um, And that's mostly what most rehabbers do. And you, it is hard. It is hard work. We don't get days off. Um, And I've been doing this for 16 years with a family, going to school, having jobs. You know, it's not my, my job. It's my dedication. Um, I do have other jobs that I do. Um, so it's it's a really big challenge, but if you really want to do something, you just won't make excuses. Yep. No, I, I agree. I'm a big fan of that. Um, 
That's what I did with the podcast and even, you know, my day job as a professional drummer. There is no path. There is no, I'm constantly hustling and figuring it out. And yeah, I, I, I appreciate people who are able to do that. It's a very cool thing. Um, so do you just, you know, one day say, hey, I'm a bat rehabber now and then just start taking bats into your house or do you have to get <laughs> permitted? Like what, yeah. you know, for people who are listening, what what is the official thing that, that lets you do this? Yeah. Um, so it depends on the state in which you live. Um, for Pennsylvania, it's a little bit more of a process. You undergo working with a licensed rehabilitator for two years. Um, you gain experience. You learn how to handle those specific animals. You learn their diets. Diet is really important, and you're not going to find that on the internet. You might find information, but it's not good information. Um, and then you... Um, apply for the application to be a licensed wildlife rehabilitator and you have inspections, you meet with the council. Um, it's a, it's a process, but it's one in which I feel is a really good process because you want to make sure that that person or people understand what they're about to get into and make sure that they do it professionally. Um, we are professionals, even though we are not paid by the state or the federal government, or anybody. We're not paid. We don't get money from those government agencies, but we are licensed through government agencies. So we are professionals for the community. And it's a process, but it's a it's a necessary one because there are, there are things that you must know. Um, you need to know zoonotic diseases. You need to know things like that. You're dealing with wild animals. No, absolutely. And and you just got your master's, am I remembering correctly? Bachelor's. bachelor's. I wish it oh, was okay. a master's. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That was right. Yeah, I know. I reached out initially to do this interview and you're like, finals. I'm in school. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> I'm dying, <Okay>. save me. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. What did you what did you get your degree in? Um, environmental science and biology. Nice, mm -hmm. nice. Very cool. I'm working towards a master's in biology right now and it uh, is a lot. Oh, but, so you yeah. understand. <laughs> I do. Yeah. No, when you sent that, I was like, Girl. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh man. I, and I feel so bad because I am so behind on emails and I, it's not like I'm eating Cheetos on the couch and avoiding <laughs> everyone. It's that I, um, I'm going to school or was going to school and now I'm, I'm focused on mycology, believe it or not. That is something of a trajectory for me. Okay. Very cool. Also, it is the fourth year of a pandemic. If you want to sit on your couch and eat Cheetos and ignore, uh, emails, you're allowed, you're, you're allowed, you're allowed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think either of us are the type of personality that would do that, but, but no. you're allowed. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so let's, let's talk about, uh, some of your current, uh, bat friends. Um, you know, so how many, how many do you have in, in, in the garage right now? In total, <laughs> we have, we have 109 bats. That's um, insane. yeah. And overall this past year we took in 300 and I want to say 27, but I don't remember the number off the top of my head. Um, each year it progressively gets more and more, um, whether it be bats that actually need help. Most bats, I would say 99.9% .9 of them need to come into rehab. And people say, oh, well, it's grounded, put it on a tree, it's fine. Well, we don't know if that animal is injured. And bats being flying mammals, they dehydrate. They have a high surface area and they have evaporative loss very quickly. 
Um, and they also have a really high metabolism and fast respiration, which means if they're not replenishing their energy, they are starving. So bats can easily starve more so than some other animals. So most of the bats that come into care need to come in for one reason or another. Okay. And how do you, like, how do you find these bats out there? Do you just go walking through the woods and find them laying around or? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I mean, I do go walking through the woods, but I, I never find bats, believe it or not. Um, so it's actually the public. We rely on community, um, people just doing their daily lives. They might go, uh, out shopping and see a bat on a sidewalk because a bat that's injured, that was just hit by a car, obviously can't fly. Um, becomes grounded and is now on the sidewalk or the side of a building. Um, Sometimes people find baby bats that fell from mom, um, all multitudes of issues. And um, we provide a a valuable service for the community and a way for them to get that animal help. Um, So it's actually the public that finds these bats. That's cool. And then they, they, you, you have to build your brand and awareness so that they know to contact you. Is that, Mm -hmm. that's, Wow, that's a big responsibility. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's a 24-7 <laughs> responsibility. Yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing that you're, you're having such success with that, though. Um, and especially an animal that people fear. You'd think they'd be like, oh, look, a dying bat. Good. But they, they reach out, and they, that's very cool. Um, tell me about some of the stars that you have right now, because <laughs> I know that, that the bats are named. So not all of them. Not that's a lot of names. Of yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my wife uh, names every Pokemon that she catches in the game, which is like four or 500 of them by the end. Oh, my gosh. She names everyone. I'm like, wow. 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 <laughs> she can help name the bats. <laughs> um, Trust me, she would love nothing more. But, yeah. So um, we have the Countess. She is a Hori bat that was found um, two summers ago. And she was grounded after um, a cluster of pine trees were cut down. She was too young to fly, so she she fell a, quite a distance. They can roost up to 40 feet in conifers. Um, so she's currently a star making her rounds. A lot of people love the video of her chewing a mealworm. I saw that, and I was like, wow. You know, I never thought this floofy uh, little panda would get so much love, but I'm glad she is. Um Zeus, we nickname him Zeusy Poo. Um, <laughs> you give this strong name of Zeus, and then you're like Zeusy Poo. <laughs> it is so adorable. I love him. He was found um, also really young after a really bad thunderstorm, and I think he was either just learning to fly or he was hanging on mom, and he was quite large to be hanging on mom. Um, so he was likely learning to fly, and he just probably got knocked out of the sky and uh, he came into care and my goodness, he has a personality. Um, and then we have Loki. Uh, I'm, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I gotta, <laughs> you can't say my goodness, he has a personality and then leave it there. <laughs> Describe the personality. Um, <laughs> tell us what so Zeus is like. Zeus has a strong personality, like his name suggests. Um, he does not like any other bat being fed before him. <laughs> <laughs> so he will admit this high high pitch sound. It's deafening when he hears the mealworms and then he yeah. <laughs> now do you give in or are you just like okay, all right, Zuzi, but we feed you first. It's fine. Um we have to give in because if we don't, he starts flapping his wings. Okay. He causes a ruckus. Gotcha. He is he is too much. <laughs> 
Um, but we love him. He's so he's just he's just great. Um, and then Loki is a, a bat that was found. He has a sad story. Um, he was really young. He's also a Hore bat. Um, and the other two are Hore bats. They're a uh, tree roosting species, the largest in PA, really beautiful bats. Um, and he was found grounded. And this woman um, contacted a licensed capture transport person um, that is uh, through Win. It's called Wildlife in Need, Pennsylvania. And they're incredible. And um, she was preparing to put him into a secure container as um, the transporter suggested. And the neighbor said, no, don't do that. Just hit him and kill him with the shovel. And this is a tiny little bat that is helpless, lost mom, um, and is in need of of help. And so he came into care and, and um, we raised him. And now he's hopefully going to be flying in spring. That's so sweet. I love that. Yeah. Um, are are the bats that you bring in mostly releasable? And and for the ones that aren't, what what do you do? Um, so around seventy to eighty percent of them are releasable. It really depends on the year. It depends on the environmental issues that the bats might have to face, um, temperatures and weather dependent. Um, and of course, um, some of them get hit by cars and things like that. So the ones that aren't releasable, depending on their personality, we may keep them as education ambassadors or we might um, keep them for a companion for other ambassador bats. Um, sometimes we do have to euthanize. That is an ethical obligation. Um, and it's the most humane thing to do sometimes, you know, when they have broken bones or, um, they're not doing well or they're sick and they're just not recovering. Uh, sometimes euthanasia is preferred. And so we do that. And, but most of the time, most of the bats get released and that's like our favorite thing. If you come to our programs in the the warmer months and see our public releases, our volunteers and ourselves and my staff, we love releasing the bats. I get so excited. I feel like a child when we release the bats. I'm like, everybody probably thinks I'm crazy because I'm so excited. But seeing that animal go from almost not being able to make it to getting to fly the sky again, it is it is incredible. Oh yeah, no, I I completely get that. Um, Zoe and I have have had some rehab turtles that we we've helped out um, with rehabs, like by homing them and stuff, mm-hmm. and and gone and released and helped friends release them. And um, she's even done some stuff with like baby opossums that we 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 then released and stuff. And watching them just scoot out is, I mean, there's not a dry eye. Like, come mm-hmm. on, that is the most magical feeling in the world. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I actually. I have a a, a, a a frenemy. No, we're friends, but um, <laughs> we're not. We're not the. We our personalities just don't mesh. But we're in the same world, and um and and I have a deep love for this person. But like, we're never going to hang out just the two of us. You know what I mean? But we have gone and released some turtles and stuff together, and I have never meshed more with this person Aww. than when we're doing the thing because that's you know, a special that's moment. Important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And no, I really, I would love to come back for a, a release. I would love Absolutely. that. Um, yeah, I think, I think the thing that I want to see the most in this world, I'm a huge sea turtle nut and I want to go to a, a sea turtle re-release and just, you know, uh, there is a huge, um, uh, rehab center for, sea turtles and, and other aquatic, um, turtles, uh, 
in Texas. It's Southern Texas. I can't remember the name of it. And when they had cold stunned turtles, especially when Texas gets really cold. Oh yeah. This year's been crazy. And I think it was also last, maybe last year or two years ago. You'll have to, you'll have to research it. They, they took in a lot of sea turtles that were cold stunned um, and then re-released them when it was warm. It was really incredible. Yeah, I love I love all that kind of stuff. Um, so what are bats, you know, like as far as like when they get released? Are they able, will they stay in the same area? Do bats travel a lot? Are you just surrounded by released bats now? How does this, how does that all work? So we don't release on our own property. Um, I choose not to because we are, even though we are in the country, there is a busy road um, right outside of our area. And so I choose not to do that. Plus, um, we really encourage releasing on preserved land. So we go throughout the entire area and release on mostly it's either DCNR or game commission, um, land that is a a preservation. And so we release there or where there's an established colony, um, there are endangered species in PA and there are federally endangered species as well. And so those threatened endangered species have to go back near their area. So we will release uh, five miles, within five miles of where they are found. Um, For the big browns, they will go anywhere. They don't care. Um, I shouldn't say they don't care. But they are so social that they will either go back to the roost that they were at or they will travel and find a new roost. Um, We typically release our big browns. There's uh, French Creek State Park. They have a really great colony of big browns. I think they're starting to get um, an abundance of big browns to, <laughs> because of us. Um, but really, bats are similar to birds that they have a homing sense. And so we can't release all 300 bats where they were found. That's just driving all over the state, and it's impossible. So we try to release them in an established colony, um, especially juveniles or babies that we raised and get them back to where they need to be. And uh, most of the time they stay where they, you know, I don't actually know if they stay, but right. um, with the numbers that increase year after year, we assume that some of that has to do with us. Um, we have released red bats here on our land um, because red bats travel every few days. They don't stay in the same place for months on end or even weeks on end. Um, so we do see red bats that we didn't see before. So maybe it's ours. I don't know. Um, and currently we have a bat named Vinny. He is a big brown and he was found here at the rehab in our recycling can. Don't know why. Or no, that was Oscar. Sorry. Vinny, Vinny's different. Vinny has, uh, yeah, he's different. Anyway, (laughs) Oscar is the one that was found in the recycling can. That um, makes sense. Oscar. Oscar yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, <laughs> I like it. Yes. So he was found here and he, ever since we had him in care, there was one less bat flying in the sky above our home. And so we kind of figured he, he would fly over our home every, every night we had three bats. It's very kind of sad being a bat rehabber to only have three, but, <laughs> but whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they will migrate, they will travel. They don't stay in the same place all year long. Um, some of them travel more than others. So they're always flying. That's very cool. Uh, So, um, you know, you mentioned endangered species. 
and you introduced me to a member of a very endangered species. So talk about that a little bit. Lady Longears is a northern longear bat that's considered now federally endangered. Um, they were just listed as federally endangered due to white nose syndrome and the population collapse due to the um, invasive fungus. And so um, she's she's a permanent resident for non-white nose syndrome related, but um, we hold special permits to have those endangered animals. Um, so... Do you know what their numbers are like right now? Because I remember when they got listed, I did a story about this on one of my Zoo News episodes, but I can't I can't remember it off the top of my head. Northern long-ear bats are at a, around a 99% decline. Oh, jeez. And that's that's in the state of Pennsylvania. So right. their their range may vary as far as other states are concerned. But Pennsylvania is a really important state because, and I'm not saying the others aren't, but <laughs> Pennsylvania is important because we have a lot of caves and mines and we tend to be a really um, abundant in hibernating bat species. So bats from northern regions or wherever will will migrate to Pennsylvania and um, and overwinter here. And of course, the fungus you know has a really high percentage of mortality in every single cave and mine. It's around ninety nine to one hundred percent mortality rate per um, hibernaculum. So. We have decimated, these these populations have been decimated by white-nose syndrome here. So the northern long-ear, the little brown, the tricolored, um, and of course the Indiana bat um, are all in, in severe decline. That is, uh, that is unfortunate. Um, how... Um how do you deal with with uh, white nose syndrome? Um, for those who are listening, we did an episode back in the first season uh, with a researcher working on white nose syndrome uh, up in Canada, um, Jordi Sergers. And so, if you want to learn more detailed stuff about the disease, you can go check out that episode. But can you give me just a quick synopsis and then um, tell me how you deal with it here personally? That yeah. Um, so white nose syndrome is a cold thriving fungus only, and it has a very specific temperature and humidity range, which is conducive to caves and mines, not conducive to barns and attics. Um, so white nose syndrome doesn't affect bats, especially big browns, because um, big browns are a little bit different. They, it does affect big browns, but not to the magnitude of the other smaller. They're called myotis. So they're Small myotis, meaning mouse, eared. Oh, so cute. I like that. <laughs> um, so those species are, are highly uh, impacted because they go into hibernation earlier and they stay in hibernation for quite some time, whereas big browns go into hibernation a little bit later and wake earlier and they have more of a cold tolerance. Um, your little browns, your northern long ears, your tricolors, they have a very specific um, hibernating temperature range and it's not very uh, variable. Um since the presence of white nose syndrome, biologists have found that they are uh, hibernating at colder temperatures, which helps to slow the growth of the fungus. Um, the fungus only impacts the bats. Here in Pennsylvania, it impacts them from January to April, believe it or not. Um, so it's not the very beginning of winter. It takes time for um, the fungus to establish itself and really start causing damage to their wings um, and any exposed membrane. So the way we treat it here in captivity is um, we we actually founded a protocol. I found a protocol that works really, really well, and it's really simple. And I'm actually going to a conference tomorrow and presenting uh, my research. 
Nice. So, that's awesome. Yeah. First of all, congratulations. That's really cool. But yeah, give us give us give us an idea what that is. Um, it's actually um, povidone iodine. Uh, diluted povidone iodine is an antimicrobial, and it's great for bacterial infections. And we use it on humans. Um, obviously, if it's concentrated, it's not super well to use. So you dilute it, and the bats are capable of ingesting it with any toxicity issues, and it immediately destroys the fungus. It destroys um, it. It destroys <laughs> the uh, cellular components of the fungal fungal spores, and so um, as immediately upon treatment, it it does its job. The, this is this is insane. This is astonishing. This is a disease that has been ravaging bat populations for years now, mm-hmm. and you found something that fixes it. Yeah, we. The, the, Good God. Like, that's amazing. Like, yeah. seriously, congratulations Thank for starters. You. And holy crap, can we spray this all over, like, caves? Like, how does this – what's the next – Yeah, this is amazing. Um, unfortunately, we can't. It is an antimicrobial, and there is really great beneficial bacteria. And there's more beneficial bacteria than harmful. Um, unfortunately, the harmful is pretty bad. Um, so you can't just go around, unfortunately, spraying caves with antimicrobials. But um, I, my advisor at Kutztown University, uh, she worked with me for three years, and we we really are doing a lot of things with white nose syndrome. And her students now are doing a lot of stuff as well. Um, but what I did was I had an epiphany moment. I had all these little browns that the Game Commission, uh, Pennsylvania Game Commission, had come to me. Uh, to help. And so we got, uh, I want to say 15, it was quite a few winters ago. And we tried every topical, every, you know, antifungal, um, there's, uh, ficonazole, there's all sorts of different, um, medications, oral medications that you can give for fungal issues. Nothing was working and the bats were dying. And it started becoming, to a point where I was really losing my mind um, because you have all these bats that are just dying and there's no way you can help them. And so I had an epiphany moment. I was treating another bat um, with povidone iodine and she was healing beautifully and she actually got released. And so I was like, huh? So at 1am I texted my veterinarian at the time and said, Hey, can we try this on white nose bats? And I had this one white nose bat after all those little Browns died um, I was like, oh my God, you know, I have no, I have no idea what to do anymore. And so we had one big brown bat come in and his name is Doyle now. And he was missing his tail membrane. He was missing his wing membrane. It was just totally degraded by the fungus. And I was like, hey, can we, uh, can we try this? And and my veterinarian's like, sure, go ahead. And so I did. And he healed remarkably. So he's not releasable because he had so much, uh, wing membrane degradation that when it did regenerate, um, it constrained some of his finger bones. So he doesn't have flight capability, but he totally healed, um, and had those finger bones, um, had the membrane healed in such a way that didn't constrict the finger bones, he would have been releasable. So that's so cool. So we have a captive protocol, but we, we can't implement it out in the wild, but it's a start. And there are other researchers working, um, including my advisor, um, working on, you know, wild um, populations and, and helping them in, in their environment. That's, that's like, I, I'm sorry that I'm so taken aback by this, but I've been aware of white nose syndrome for like, 
two and a half, three years now. Like I said, I did a big interview about it. That was basically the end result was we're working really hard, but we got nothing. All these bats are still going to die. And it was not the most hopeful episode I've ever put out, though informative and good. Um, And then to just hear like – yeah, because this thing has, like you said, like a 99 to 100% fatality rate. Mm -hmm. It's – that's amazing. That's just amazing. Yeah. So cool. It was was really neat because you didn't understand that there's actually – White nose syndrome is really easy to kill. The fungal spore itself is is really easy to inhibit growth. I didn't realize that, but um, it took it took a team. I can't take all the credit. It took a team of people. It took the right conditions and the right connections to facilitate this whole thing to where it is today. And um, so we actually found co-infection. It's not just white nose syndrome. So there's another. Um, there's another microbial that that really kind of takes advantage that lives naturally on the surface of us, mm-hmm. ne- not maybe the same species, but um, there's a lot of different uh, microflora that live on our skin. Same with bats, same with anything. And so, under the right conditions, some of those microflora, some of those microbes, can take advantage of a situation and become um, pathogenic. Okay, so that's what happened. Interesting. <laughs> I'm I'm a nerd. (laughs) No, I mean, so is everyone that has ever been on this podcast, including me. That is the point. We are we are here to discuss science and nerdy stuff, and you know, cute animals in the process. Yes. Um. Yeah. No. That's wow. Well, that's very cool. What what conference are you going to? What What is this? Um. It's called the Northeast Bat Working Group, and so there are many different bat working groups. (laughs) So many nerds. Love it. (laughs) Throughout the country, um, in North America, in particular, and throughout the world. Oh. Just it's just so I don't know. One of the things that really brings me satisfaction is seeing everyone working together, um, internationally, nationally. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, just working together for a common goal, and that is to save bats. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what discipline you are, whether you're a biologist or a microbiologist or a pathologist, veterinarian. It doesn't matter. We are all coming together, and that's just fascinating. Um, and so there's that, there's that conference, but then there's also some subset, I guess you could say, some of those biologists and, um, and other disciplines and even rehabbers are a part of what's called the white nose syndrome response team. And I'm one of those members. So there's a conference for that too. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, no, I, I am fascinated by seeing the connections, even just like you know, I've helped connect keepers that work with the same species and stuff, and and then they start talking to each other and enriching the lives of their animals and stuff, and like building those connections and just helping with all of that. Just it's been a very cool part of this, and seeing how tight and how small and how almost creepily interconnected the, yes. the whole animal world is. It's it's interesting when you're dedicated to something. Like I'm just really one person, just. I had no idea that so many people would care and I'm so fascinated. I'm so appreciative of how many people are following us and, and any bat rehab um, because we're, we're kind of like the underdogs of the rehab community um, because bats are like one of the most misunderstood animals in the world. And I am just so thankful because I'm just here doing this like I didn't expect it to to be a big thing. Um, yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And I'm curious. You mentioned that you know you don't get paid by like the government or anything. Mm-hmm. 
how are you affording this? Do you make any money off of what you do? And I don't even mean like living expenses. I mean like to cover that much less. You know, I know you're not buying a yacht from this. But, <laughs> no, <know>. definitely not. <laughs> um, so we are actually funded by the public. Um, generous donors throughout our community. And our community isn't just the people surrounding us. It's the community online. It's internationally. Um people just funding and caring about what we do and knowing that we live up to our mission of helping bats and seeing the stories of the bats and, and saving them, releasing them, whatever it might be. Um, so we solely get donations from members of the public. Um, and so we, we were really running out of space many years ago. And so we did convert a garage into the rehab setting. And so we we did what we had to do in the moment for what we were doing and to be able to do what we do. But now we're running out of space. And so for the past four years, I've been diligently working, whether it be um, outreach programs, which I'm really huge on education to begin with, um, to fundraisers, to all sorts of different ways to uh, generate funds. And now we are in the process of hopefully renovating and expanding. And that's really important. And that's where the money goes. The money goes right back into the bats. And so I think one of the things that sets me apart personally and professionally from a lot of things is um, we are not just rehabbers. We are researchers. And I don't mean that in the sense of we're not testing cosmetics on bats or anything like that. I mean, yes, no researchers as in like a productive research. We want to make sure the populations out in the wild are doing okay. And why aren't they doing okay? Is it just white nose syndrome? What else is it? Um, And we do, we do help uh, the Pennsylvania game commission with surveys. And so we are doing a little bit of everything. And so some of our volunteers are grad students or undergrad students or doing research, or we help them do research or give them ideas for their undergrad projects or graduate projects. Um, and some of them are volunteers that will take on other projects like surveying, you know? so it's, I don't just believe rehab is the end all be all. I really want to make sure that when we release the bats, if there's one thing that I can do in my lifetime, it would be to make sure that their habitat can sustain them. Otherwise, what is the purpose? Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense to me. That's I got real there. You did. I like it though. No, I really. That's really cool. I, I, yeah, makes sense. Um, so you know, um, how can people help you? How can people fund this? How can people further your mission? That is a great question. And so donations, whether they're monetary, we do have an Amazon wish list. I try really hard not to do Amazon because, um, they generate a lot of uh. Waste. (laughs) Being an environmentalist, I really try to lower our environmental impact here. Um, So we do ask for donations from Amazon, but it's not often. Um, We do have a wish list. Um, We do have a mealworm company. Actually, we we've been with them for quite some time. They're based out of Dauphin, um, so very close to Harrisburg. And so I think what we might start doing is if people want to donate but don't want to do it monetarily, which I understand, they can also. Um, pay for our mealworms because we go through more than half a million mealworms a year. (laughs) (laughs) If you can imagine that. Um, And obviously monetary donations are really important. Um, If you have um, an occupation that 
you know, through your job will be a charitable donation. We also will set up something for that because we are a uh, 501c3 nonprofit. Um, and so anything to that respect. Okay. Very cool. And um, uh, I'll put all of your website and the Insta and everything in the show notes and people yeah. can go and check that out. Uh, I have to ask, you know, you talked about community support and you said mm-hmm. it's not just the people locally, but like, again, you've got a good bit of property here, but you're in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. How are the neighbors doing with the fact that there are a hundred plus bats living in their neighborhood? Um, some of them don't care. Okay. Um, some of them are really intrigued. Like we have neighbors who walk, um, walk along the roads, you know, just casually strolling along during the warmer months. And they say, Hey, how are the bats? <laughs> um, and, and things like that. And we do have our, I think our, as we grow, people are becoming more familiar with us. Um, our township, um, uh, administrative, I, I guess, board of directors or board, uh, are very well aware of what we do and they're very supportive. So it's, thankfully it's a very supportive thing. And I think it's because it took our populations to, of collapsing to really appreciate what it is that bats do for the environment and being a keystone state, they are a keystone flagship species. So we have to understand that without them, our environment is kind of changing as far as the insect populations and things like that. So they are a huge importance, especially around here, because you probably saw and you probably even have agricultural land out towards you. There's a lot of agricultural land here. And um, and bats eat a lot of agri- agricultural pests and forest pests that are really important, um, especially non-native, like the emerald ash borer. So uh, and no, they don't eat the lantern flies. Um, <laughs> Can you I, train them to do I, so? <laughs> I've been asked if I could many times. Unfortunately, I don't think they acquired the taste for them yet. Um, but they do eat Japanese beetles and they do eat stink bugs. So, yay. <laughs> yay, indeed. No, that that's important. Um, very cool. So I think it is time. Uh, I'm going to ask you one thing, and then it's time for our favorite story. But um, first, is there just anything else you want to tell us about what you do or just about bats in general or, you know, all the things? Um, I think it's important for a lot of people to understand that behind this organization are are humans, are people um, dealing with everyday people lives. And um, just knowing that we do this out of the goodness of our heart because we love this animal um, and all of our volunteers, they they love seeing the bats. This is why they volunteer with us, um, and and we just do this because we appreciate them and we want to educate people. We want to shine light on, you know, the nocturnal animals that everybody's afraid of. Um, so hopefully, by doing this, people will see how awesome and cute and fluffy they are, and appreciate them flying the night sky, doing their little bat duties at night. I love it. That's that's very cool. And now it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. <laughs> um, so, I mean, bats are interesting because their poop is not as gross as other animals. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, so... <laughs> Every time we have volunteers or we go into our flight cage, 
Um, we always say you can obviously look up, but don't open your mouth. And that's because bats poop in flight. And there have been many instances where they have pooped on us. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's, it's pretty gross. I mean, but we work with them. So just don't open your mouth when you're in the flight cage and you'll be fine. It's good advice. Always good <laughs> advice. I like that. Cool. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. Okay, there you have it, folks. So, you know, I'm not the boss of you, and I don't get to tell you what to do. But, um, you know, we have a lot of awesome facilities on here and a lot of great organizations on here. But rarely have I seen one that is so inspiring to me and that honestly so much just small help could go a long way towards. So um, if you are able to do anything to help out uh, the Pennsylvania Bat Rescue, I would really appreciate it. And, you know, if you let them know it's coming from uh, hearing, hearing them on the pod, that certainly does not hurt at all. You can go to pabatrescue.org and uh, find a bunch of ways to help there. And, of course, make sure that you are following along on Instagram at pabatrescue uh, because they, they post really, really cute um, photographs and videos, lots and lots of uh, videos of these adorable little bats and if you know anybody who doesn't love bats if you show them some of this stuff i think they're going to fall in love so uh yeah final reminder to let me know what you think of the new intro style and uh you know having a a fun thing at the end occasionally and um I, i look forward to continuing to see how this podcast grows and changes and evolves and all those good things so uh thank you so much for being here i want to say thank you especially to all of my patrons and especially especially my red panda level patrons Lara Shank and Kristen Dickey and remember friends the word credits backwards is Steiderk the Rossafari podcast is produced hosted and engineered by John Rossi editing and fact checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi our theme song is sevens by Nathan Burke performed by Nathan and John interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray you can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. Zeus, we nickname him Zeusy Poo.